It's movie night, and we're rewinding Hard Eight. Adam Lippy is in the house, and we'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make the show? And welcome, my friends, to the last Wednesday of the month here on the Mind Dog TV podcast. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here. As always, that's Adam Lippy over there, the beautiful and talented Adam Lippy, our a resident film expert. And tonight we're going to be talking about a film called Heart Eight. Adam, you want to take it away? Absolutely. But first, can I? Uh, uh, my film is uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, which I wrote, wrote, produced, and directed, is being re released on April 15th through Whoa. what's called Cosm, which is a streaming service, Q0SM.com. Uh, but um, uh, uh, there'll be a coupon code and you can get a discount if you want to. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again at the end of the show and I'll go through that stuff. Um, more, but sure. Go ahead. Your film, your film has had more releases than a Copeg massage parlor. Uh, it's 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 going to be uh, twenty five of them. <laughs> if we if we keep doing this every month, it'll be a new place to play every time. Okay, that's uh, that's the way the world works now with uh, distribution. What, is um, this a new streaming service? Um, I had signed a contract with them when they were Viddy Space, and now they are they have switched to a new type of service, but it, it'll work the same for me. Excellent. Where the, where you'll have deleted scenes and commentary as an option as well. Oh well, good luck with it again. Are you going to be? <laughs> uh, are you going to be doing a Q and A with this one? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I'll 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 do as much promotion as I can. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if I show up on fifty five podcasts again, that's what happened. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe, maybe there'll be a, a a bonus. There'll be ton, tons more people buying tickets. Can't control that stuff, right? Right, right. <laughs> it won't be as expensive as when it played last year, certainly. Yeah. Um, be- before we get into that, what do you think? Because uh, uh, it seems things, even though number of cases aren't going down, it seems things are opening up. Do you think movie theaters, because bars and comedy clubs are opening up, what do you think about movie theaters? Well, m- the movie theater, in fact, when my film premiered, um, The Colonial, has been open since last summer at sort of 25%, and I think they might be at 50 now. I'm not sure. I haven't gone i don't feel comfortable although we just got our um appointment for vaccination uh maybe an hour ago so um we're gonna go we have to go pretty far away like two and a half hours away to get our shots um well in pennsylvania they have not quite figured it out yet in terms of (laughs) certain certain counties are have too much and then other counties where it's more populated like where i am have not enough no wonder Pennsylvania always a problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's get on with Hard Eight. Uh, let, let me just start by asking you why you chose this movie for tonight. This is absolutely one of my favorite films. Um, and um, it's by uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, uh, who, who uh, this was his first film. He directed Boogie Nights. He directed Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, um, The Master, Inherent Vice, and um, what's the one I'm forgetting with Daniel Day-Lewis and The Clothing. Um, which I also like very much. Uh, it'll come to me later. Um, uh, I picked it. I, I love um, kind of quiet noirs like this. Um, and I love when you can kind of watch people um, process things in sort of in real time. And that like Dave has a very lived in experience. And I also can rarely think of a movie that's like about a, a, 
I mean, there are a couple examples, but there are rarely movies, especially American made that are about criminals that aren't about like, we're doing the crime now. And, you know, we're going to spend, uh, you know, uh, we're either going to prison or we're getting, we're going to be rich. This is what happens to the guy if he happened to just live through it and not spend all his life in prison and, you know, just kind of live a lower middle-class lifestyle and uh, kind of, it's, it's, it's a sad and depressing movie. Um, but I find it um, not uplifting, but just, you know, realistic and, and um, affecting and smart and often funny too. Well, the only thing I would say, because I grew up living this life, kind of, <laughs> my father was a bookie, um, and the only thing I would say that's a little bit unrealistic about it is the, the fact that this guy is so clean cut. He's a, obviously a compulsive gambler and a guy who thinks he has a system and everybody thinks they have a system, mm -hmm. but he's awfully clean for a guy who, who has that because... Mo and and I mean his suit is always well pressed. The, the collars are perfect. Um, in in the real gambler world, they're kind of disheveled a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I want to get into that in the movie in terms of how um, you know he's putting on a bit of a front, and that's that's part of it. And I yeah. don't. Um, I sent you a copy of the script, and I don't know if you got a chance to read even just the extended part of it that I suggested. Uh, I did. Yeah. Now yeah. in the in the. In the long in the script itself, I didn't say read the whole thing because most of it is the same. But there are flashbacks to when he was a criminal, and there are um, you know, oh uh, you know, okay, and this is his real life. And I I didn't like almost any of the things that were uh, in the script that were cut out. I don't think any of it would help the movie at all. Um, I like it being more of a mystery and that you can fill it in, and it's so well acted that I don't generally care to know. I don't need you to fill in all the blanks. I, right. I, I prefer the way that it's presented in the movie. Um, yeah. Even though the director did struggle and had a two and a half hour cut of this movie at some point and fought for it and fought for it. And I think um, the suggestions that it be cut down to the length that it's at now, which is about about 100 minutes, I think is actually right. I think it, it's uh, per perceptive of, of whomever forced him to do that. And in fact, cut the extended ending that was in the uh, that was in the script. Well, the the service that I watched it on, I didn't, I'm not even going to uh, promo them or give them any credit, but they actually insert commercials in it, and so oh, it was it was on Amazon Prime. I I know, but I didn't watch it there. I looked for it on Amazon Prime. It took me too long, and then I saw another one that said, "Watch it free now." And I started watching it, and I was 20 minutes into it when the commercial started, and then the commercials start every four minutes, and then it's oh, like, you had, oh my you, you, god. <laughs> you hit in what's called AVOD, the AVOD terror. Oh uh, yeah, which and is advertising video on demand in which you you have the autom just the interruptions and the interruptions and the interruptions. Oh, and way too more than commercial television ever had, like yep. more way too frequent, and so it it made watching it a lot longer than it needed to be for me. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry about that. It is on Amazon Prime for anybody uh, uh, who's going to watch it who hasn't seen it before. Um, and it is free um, if you have Amazon right now. Um, and right. that's how I watch it. I have it on DVD, uh, which has a lot of extra material. But the movie is uh, actually has been out of print on DVD for, I don't know, 15 years. Right. And Who has never... a DVD player anyway? Yeah, well, I <laughs> you, do. But yeah, <laughs> but but, uh, um, uh, but yeah, so um, it's, uh, it, it, it's a movie that kind of disappeared. It had major distribution problems. Um, it sat on the shelf for a, a while and, um, and I think that's kind of a shame because I think that it's a, it's a percept. I, I mean, uh, before we get into the plot, you can say like, 
I know you were you were uh, interrupted quite a bit. Did you did you relate to it? Did you think that it was well made? Did you? Well, yeah, you and you, you know, sometimes I have a, a difficult. Uh, if I like somebody, I can't I can't be too critical of anything anyway. And I love John T. Riley, so uh, and so just. And and the guy who played Bookman and I don't know his name, uh, Sydney guy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I like him. Uh, it's just I want. I it's it was hard for me to see him in that role at first, but I understand that. But uh, there's something compelling about him that I. So I, once I get to that point where I genuinely like both these guys. I can't be critical anymore. It's like, you know, I'm going to defend this. Like these are, these are my bros. These are my friends. I, so, uh, you know, there was that familiarity about, it. there are parts of the movie where I started to get like, well, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, but for the most part, I really enjoyed the film and, and I did think it was realistic, but you know, again, knowing all the gamblers I grew up with, I never saw one in a perfect suit like that ever. <laughs> Well, but it's in this movie. It's sort of a mirage, I think. And yeah, I think yeah, I know. By the second half of the film, you get the more. Hey, this is probably closer to what life is like for this person. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'll give a plot summary to anybody who hasn't seen it. It is the first film by Paul Thomas Anderson, which he made. Uh, he he made when he was twenty five, which is uh, uh striking to say the least. Um, and uh, uh, it was released when he was twenty seven. Came out the same year as Boogie Nights because it sat on the shelf for a while, and. Um, it is about uh, a man um, who is found on the side of the road near a, a diner and brought in by another older man who who says, hey, how can I help you? And and uh, John C. Riley is the man who's on the side of by the diner. And he says, um, you know, my I want to bury my mother, but I don't have any money. And Phil, Philip Baker Hall playing Sydney uh, offers him fifty dollars and then shows him the ropes um, in terms of how uh, he can at least get a, a room for the night and and. Uh, um, and any other thing. And then there's this, I just think that the first 20 minutes are nearly perfect, honestly, uh, in terms of you're taught a thing, you're shown a thing and you, it's a complete mystery, but um, uh, it's uh, about why anybody's motivations and, and you're just completely swept up by it. Like, honestly, the first 20 minutes are, is just nearly perfect to me. Yeah. John character, John T. Riley. Uh, um, I, I was with him, like you know, what nobody's nice for no reason, and so I was mm -hmm. suspicious as he was in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I'm giving away too much, but uh, I would try to picture myself, and and I don't think I, no matter what, I I don't, I don't think I would have accepted the help. I would have been too suspicious. But at some point, uh, he went, he wins him over and goes and, and accepts the help. So, but well, but I don't, you know, when, I don't think when he I meets. Would. When when John C. Riley meets Philip Baker Hall, he's 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 like an angry animal. He's a wounded animal. Right, right. And then once once he's charmed, he behaves like a puppy dog the entire rest of the movie. Right. Um, yeah. And and they all have their sort of positions in what they're doing. Um, and uh, so I'll sh should I finish the plot summary for those? You want, you want to do that? Do do what, you yeah. run the show? Okay. Um. So uh. Yeah. So um. Uh, he he shows him the ropes and he gets him a room for the night. And then the movie cuts to two years later and um, uh, John is following around Sydney and Sydney is just playing Kino in a, in a, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of divey bar. Um, and, and, you know, as you said, a two sharp suit uh, while he sits there and uh, John C. Rowe is hanging out with Sam Jackson and Sam Jackson playing Jimmy and Jimmy comes over and um, you know, Sam Jackson is crude 
and uh, and uh, way over the top a little bit. Not in his performance. He's actually exactly right for the performance. That's a right. very easy guy to picture. Um, uh, and what I found remarkable is that Sam Jackson's not in another scene to that point for nearly an hour. I know, yeah. And yet you feel him the entire time. Sam Jackson brings his energy to this movie to where you sense that he's there because right. um, there's one thing I want to show later. Um, uh, w- this movie um, was written in about 93, um, 94, uh, initially based on a short film that the director made. And then he shopped it at Sundance, the short played at Sundance, and then they, they got some financing and then they shot some scenes for a Sundance lab that lasted a couple of weeks. And in the uh, at the Sundance lab, Sam Jackson was not cast at that point. And so he had Courtney Vance do it. And Courtney Vance is a great actor, but he does not bring what Sam Jackson does. Uh, Courtney Vance is sort of an honest, direct um, actor. And what Sam Jackson does is bring an uneasy sleaziness to lots of his roles to where he sticks in your mind. Like you remember him. Like I think if Courtney Vance had been in the role, it wouldn't have worked. I don't yeah. think you'd buy how the movie is structured at that point. And he would, he would have faded from the memory, but Sam Jackson sticks in the memory, especially the way that he's playing this. Um, and this is sort of in his salad period where like everything that he's in, you know, this is right. You know, he got cast right off Pulp Fiction uh, and been nominated for an Oscar probably should have won. Um, but all sorts of uh, other great roles like kiss of death and um, you know, uh, f- from that era, we covered one the last time, the new age, but just like, you know, one after the other, after the other, just great work that he was doing before he fell into the, the current pattern of I make money and I'm in every Marvel movie, but you know, I'm, I'm sure he'd like a challenge at some point. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so Anderson um, uh, uh, grew up in California um, and uh, his father was Ernie Goulardi Anderson. And I don't know if you know who that is, nope. Matt Goulardi was a, uh, a horror host in the early sixties in Cleveland, very influential. Um, uh, the guy, instead of like normally dressing up like a monster, he dressed up like a hipster and <laughs> he would interact with the movies. Like he'd chroma himself into the movie. So he'd be chased by the monster in the movie. And oh, he, yeah. and he always, he would, he would blow things up on the air um, with firecrackers. <laughs> like, and people, he was so popular that people would send him like uh, toys to blow up on the air. Um, like, like little army men and little toy cars and stuff. And that's why, have you seen Boogie Nights before? Yeah. Okay. So do you remember that there's that great scene in the Wonderland, the, the Wonderland scene, the, the John Holmes Wonderland. Murders, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and there's the kid throwing firecrackers. That's yeah, why that's right. there because his father used to do that. In fact, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's production company is like Goulardi film enterprises or something like that. And on uh, every one of his movies, his father died in 97 though. Um, and uh, so, um, oh, I guess I didn't finish explaining the movie, but let me let me do that before I give like a full backstory here. Um, uh, so uh, Sam Jackson is sleazy. Uh, Sydney Sydney pushes back. He doesn't you know he doesn't like that. He, you know they're they're making all the waitresses feel uncomfortable. And then um, we just kind of watch everybody's life. Uh, uh, John C. Riley is is has a thing for a waitress who's also a hooker, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, is sort of enamored with Sydney a little bit, and Sydney is trying to sort of play the father figure, and uh, he sees her hooking and and doesn't want to tell on her, and you know takes her out to to dinner, and she thinks he's gonna uh, uh, you know propose something to him, and she, and he turns it down, and then that uh, sets up the fact that John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow go hang out and uh, uh, eventually actually get married because they're just so into each other. 
even though they're only spending the day with each other. And then you're going to look, you're going to say something. No, no. I was just wondering what uh, I want you to finish this. I want to wait until you're done and ask you about when it's Paltrow's performance. Okay, sure. Um, And then uh, uh, so um, Sydney gets a call, um, uh, you know, after he's been gambling all day and he has to go uh, meet John at a hotel room and John won't let him in. And then John shows him that that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, even though they just got married, has uh, taken a John home and not John C. Riley, John, but taken a John back to this motel room and the, and the guy won't pay her and they have beaten him uh, uh, unconscious and have handcuffed him and are, and are asking for a ransom from his wife. And he has asked uh, Sydney for help and Sydney does help him and um, sends them off to uh, have their honeymoon in uh, Niagara Falls. And um, uh, Sydney goes back, thinks that it's over. And then Sam Jackson tries to extort Sydney and Sydney gives him whatever money he can uh, uh, Sam Jackson then, um, goes out for a night on the town and Sydney hides at his house and Sam Jackson comes home, uh, uh, without knowing Sydney's there and Sydney kills him. And then Sydney leaves theoretically to go see, uh, John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow. I guess it's open-ended. It's clear he's leaving Reno, whatever it is. Right. And, and the ending is different than the script. That very, started. very different. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the, the scripted ending the, the movie ending is in the script. It's just that it goes on for another six pages. Right. Um, and I think, I think, I think mistakenly, I think where it ends is actually perfect. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I agree with where it ends. Uh, yeah. I didn't like that ending that's in the script, uh, even though that's probably where it's going anyway, in my mind, once I read it, uh, I don't, I'm not happy with that, but I'm happy with where it ended. Uh, when is Paltrow? Do you think she did a, uh, was she good in this? Do you think? I think she is good in this. Um, uh, I think she is. Um, she she has been the movie, especially on Amazon Prime. When you're watching it, like on a big screen, you know, in 1080p, what's really obvious is that these big close-ups are make the skin look bad. Pock marks on John C. Riley, right? Um, yeah, yeah, the weathered yeah. skin of of uh, Philip Baker Hall. Everybody looks lived in. They look real. I believe it. Right. Um, there's when no glamour with the lipstick over. Yes, where it was melting exactly. On face. Bad makeup. She looks like mom put on the makeup. She looks like a clown at times. She's got the right. Joker lips and she's curling. And and I think it works. And then there's this really good scene where um, Gwyneth Paltrow is uh, trying to show off how badass she is when they're in the hotel room. And then and she's the one who's put them in the situation. And and Philip Baker Hall says, that, you know, this is, you know, what do you think? She says, what do you think? I'm stupid. And he says, well, this is a pretty stupid situation. And she says, well, you, who's going to be stupid when I finally get my money? And, and you just like, you know, cannot see forest for the trees at all. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually do think she's very good in this. Is she the weakest of the four? Probably. But it doesn't mean I, I, I have an issue with her performance. And, you know, at the time when they made this, she wasn't a star. Um, this was shot in 95. It's before seven even came out. Right. So she was just known as sort of like a character actress, like oh, you want the the wayfish blonde, uh, you know, pretty uh, you know pretty wayfish blonde. And you'd be like, okay, yeah, we could we could do the character part. Okay, that's fine. Um, and she didn't become a big star until probably Emma, which came out about um, in '96. So by the time this came out, she was a star, but the movie got buried, so it didn't end up mattering. Right. I I never liked her in anything before I saw her in this. And I thought she was pretty good in this. I have to say she didn't look young in this at all. She looked like life had beaten her down a little bit. And I started thinking, well, if this is 95 or so, look at that. That's the, you know, 
25 years ago, 35 years ago, whatever it is, 25 years ago. Uh, she's not a kid. And, and so, you know, she's older than I, I thought she was because she, lo- I don't know how old she is in this movie, but she doesn't look young at all. No. Well, I mean, too- she had been in, you know, movies for about four or five years at that point. You can see her in stuff like Flesh and Bone and, <clears throat> and Malice. And uh, as I said, Seven, which came out in September of 95 with right. her at the time boyfriend, Brad Pitt. She looks very young, but this was shot around the same time. Um, uh, but I think it was probably like the way that Sam Jackson is in the movie only for a couple of scenes. He probably shot for a couple of days. Um, and then the rest of it was shot, I believe over a five week period, but I don't think Gwyneth Paltrow is in so much of it where she couldn't have fitted in around the same time that they maybe were shooting seven or something right. similar that she was in, or maybe Emma or something like that. Right. So it's really just the makeup and the way that she's con- contortioned herself. I think that it makes it very effective. Yeah, I thought she was pretty good in this, and I never liked her in anything else. I thought she was, you know, or whatever, not not very convincing. I thought she uh, was a benefited from having a mother who got her into the show business. <laughs> That's fair, but she's but she's she's good in this. So so yeah. it's it's clear she does have talent. Yeah. Um. So um, I covered some, you know, Ernie Goulardi Anderson is uh, who was um, Paul Thomas Anderson's father. Um, and uh, he later become he later became the voice of ABC. So if you ever watched ABC in the seventies and eighties, you definitely heard his voice. Oh yeah, um, War- worldwide yeah. sports and that kind of stuff. Well, no, like uh, the Love Boat. Oh the guy wow, who, the Fall guy. I mean, he would overpronounce like one word and yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. And, and thing. You you heard his voice definitely. Uh, he did the voice. On, uh, he was the announcer for America's Funniest Home Videos in the eighties or early nineties. Wow. If you ever watch that, you know exactly who that voice is. I'm sure it's it was very, on in my house. Yeah, probably. Um, so um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson started early, and he uh, um, he made a, he he made a movie in high school, which is the in, uh, inspiration for uh, Boogie Nights. It's called the Dirk Diggler story, and it was 17 years old, and he made this unbelievably mature movie uh, about the porn world, but it's 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 done like a documentary. It's a half hour long. You can find it on YouTube. It's never really been legally available because it, it does have feature a very uh, famous song near the end of the movie. And um, when you watch the movie, what's so surprising is how forward thinking it is. I mean, at the point that he made the movie, John Holmes, who the movie is based on, is not even dead in real life. And yet the, the drugs are everywhere in the movie. There's no AIDS, but there's just this trepidation and the two main characters as opposed to what's in boogie nights are actually gay and they're lovers right um and in boogie nights that's not how it works at all um so um i wanted to play because what's what's so surprising about when you watch the dirk Diggler story is like wait a 17 year old made this i mean i made a movie when i was 16 and it's nowhere near as good as this and and no i didn't have i didn't grow up in the industry and i didn't you know i didn't have you know those advantages but it's so perceptive about the porn world. And there wasn't like tons of porn documentaries at the time. There was Exhausted, which is the John Holmes documentary, which this is sort of based on. There was Fallen Angels, which is about the porn industry as well, but it's very dark and depressing. And there's a couple others, but he had very little to go on. And I know he, he watched a lot of porn when he was younger because he found his dad stashed. But, you know, it, it is one of the most mature movies considering the time period. So if you don't mind just playing the clip, from from um this is from the dark diggler story and this is featuring bob ridgely who was one of the friends who's also in boogie nights so he's giving a pep talk to his crew before they start shooting you know i'm not a very religious man i've said some pretty obscene things but at this point i really want to say something that means so very much to me we need help and we need not just physical help we need help 
man upstairs. So please, let's bow our heads. Please bow your head. Dear God, we're trying so hard to make a hit out of this. We need all the help we can. We need help with the lights. We need help with the makeup. We need help with the acting. We need help in to make what we have even larger and better. So dear Lord, I ask you please, help us. Keep us from the great, great crime of premature ejaculation. We need a hit, Lord. Please, do it for us now. Amen. Amen. Okay, now let's do it, gang. Come on, we've got the spirit. You know, I see what a whole new light now is. You really have done something. You touched a cord. It's so great, Chad. If I could turn you in some way, thank you so much, Greg. Now, he's obviously playing the same role that Burt Reynolds played in Boogie Nights, Jack Horner. Um, and the, 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 the Dirk Diggler character is not in that scene. He's in the bathroom ODing. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good movie for what it is on a very low budget. Using the, the, document, the mockumentary form really helps you cut corners a lot. Uh, you, were you going to say something about that? Well, it it looks like it was shot on on VH on VHS. It was. Like it was, it was yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. well, it was made in 1987, so there weren't a lot of options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for a home movie, but uh, yeah, um, it's 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 kind of um a little over the top there with the with the, the um premature ejaculation lines. Like you know, did that necessarily have to be? I guess it did, but it kind of. I mean, it's but it's still you know, like Boogie Nights is formally a comedy, and so right, you right, have yeah. this element of it. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's funny stuff through it. There's the the karate stuff that appears in a lot of his movies. The the stuff in Boogie Nights where they sing the touch originated here. That there there's there's all that stuff. There's the the stuff in the. Uh, in the um, uh, when they're recording the music, where he's like, you know, uh, uh, you know, can you play the music a little faster? You know, maybe maybe bump it up a little, a few octaves. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's still about stupid people trying to sound smart. You know, that right, it's yeah. it's the same idea, but he just expanded it on a much bigger budget for Boogie Nights. Right. Um, so, uh, it, but yeah, I mean, it, watching the movie sort of like embarrassed me a little because because I was like, God, I well, the movie I made when I was sixteen is nowhere near the the skill level or the um, the perceptive nature of this, um, and, and you know how progressive that is for nineteen eighty seven to you know not make it a big deal that the main characters are gay and that are lovers and that they they're either straight for pay or they're bi, but it's just not even it's not right. even remarked upon. It's just hey, this is a thing, right? Um, so, um, but despite that, he didn't get into film school. Um, and it took him a couple years to get into film school. And he, um, he ended up going to the same school I went to for a year, Emerson College, um, uh, where one of his professors was David Foster Wallace, the famous author who wrote Infinite Jest. Um, and then he went to NYU film school for two days. And if you have a, can you play that clip? Because, um, was it called he, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson Film School? That thing, El, and Elvis Mitchell. Yes, I think that's yeah. that's going to help people who who watch this show okay. in terms of. No, you didn't go to film school, right? Why? Um, I think a, a a weird combination of things. I think that there was a, I, I, it was my plan in high school that I wouldn't go to film school, but then you know a couple years out of high school when I wasn't instantly directing a movie, I started to kind of panic and, and thought about going to film school and even did go to NY, enrolled in NYU. At first what happened was I couldn't get in anywhere. So when I couldn't get in, because my, my grades in high school weren't very good, so I couldn't get into college. 
And so what it did was create this attitude in me, like, I don't need film school. Anyway, because you've got to find some way to justify why, you, you know, and make it feel good to yourself. You can't get into college, you know, so you just start saying, well, that's bullshit, you know, anyway. <laughs> but then I started getting really nervous. I needed something, and I needed help, and I, 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 I enrolled in NYU, and I went there for literally two days. What, what happened was I walked into this class, and the, the, this teacher said, you know, if anyone is here to write Terminator 2, just walk out. Just get out of the door. And I thought, well, that's just not a good way to start. What if I do want to write Terminator 2? What if someone sitting next to me wants to write? You know, he was sort of instantly saying, you know, we write serious films here, you know. Terminator 2 is a pretty awesome movie. <laughs> um, so he said, yeah. So there was an assignment to hand, there was an assignment to write. It was you write a page um, that, 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 that has no dialogue in it, right? But you got to make sure that uh, you, you explain something about a character. You show a character trait through action with no dialogue, right? And I had read this, this, this uh, great script by David Mamet, which was Hoffa, which was not made at the time. And there was a great scene that Mamet had written where Danny DeVito is driving along, his character's driving along, and it shows what he's going through by the method he uses to keep himself awake while driving, which is he lights a cigarette and he holds it between his hands and he lets it burn down to his fingers to keep him burning, him, burning his fingers and keeping him awake. That's just so simple and perfect and lovely, and it's, you know, Mr. Pulitzer Prize himself, David Mamet. So I took that page and I handed it in. And, uh, <laughs> and I got a C plus. <laughs> and I said, all right, now I know I'm right. And there's a wonderful thing that if you drop out quick enough, you can get your tuition back. <laughs> so I, 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 I had had this money that my father had put aside some college money for me, you know, and I sort of, you know, very suspiciously took that money that had been, and I just lived off that and made a short film. Wow. Good for him. <laughs> so uh, the, well, I go got to say, it, it today the world has changed. Because as a guy who has hired lots of people out of film school uh, for video editing jobs and, and stuff like this, it seems to me anybody can get, you could be like uh, the worst grades in the world or anybody and get into some film school somewhere. <laughs> well, now college is financed a little differently than it was when he would have gone and when I went. And I went in the late 90s. He would have gone, you know, Hoffa would have been, he would have been there like around 91, 92 before that was made. Right. Um to where to where they basically told you it was mandatory to go, and then and then Quentin Tarantino's existence disrupts that because he doesn't go to film school and he just works in a video store, and that happens right. while I'm in high school, and we're all like, wait a minute, do we not have to go? <laughs> we, can we do it our, on our own? But you know, a lot of us went anyway, and then you yeah. learn. Well, this was really about the networking, and I, I can't say that I learned a lot about filmmaking while I was there, um, because I had studied all of it already, and so. Uh, I understand his instinct because he'd already proved he could. I mean, that movie, the Dirk Diggler story, as primitive as it is, he made as a seventeen-year-old. Right. And you, you just you just can't imagine doing having that much skill and that much foresight at that age with no real experience. You know, Robert Rodriguez made movies as a kid in his bedroom and did and 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 just sort of figured out how to do it. And um, so, film school is not necessarily the answer. But you know, does anyone oh. want to flush away two hundred grand anymore? Of course, the original filmmakers, if you go back, there were no film schools when film became a medium. So, of course, right. yeah, it just seems logical to me. But <laughs> anyway, 
So, so the, I think the key to that is that he he hands in this page by David Mamet. I'm assuming you're familiar with David Mamet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I didn't know I, if the audience was familiar. I thought I, I thought I didn't know. Like, not. hey, do we have to do? Do we have? To? So, so he wrote uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, which was which he won the Pulitzer for, which was then turned into a great movie. He wrote the play for that, and he wrote the screenplay. He wrote the screenplay for The Untouchables. He later directed House of Games and Homicide and Spartan and The Spanish Prisoner and Heist. And has written uh, lots and lots of uh, done lots and lots of great work. But one of the key things that Mamet does is the way that people talk. So um, it's very mannered. It's very specific. It's about repetition. Um, so I'd be like, Matt, you have me on your show. Why I I I'm saying that I am on your show. I'm on your show right now. I am on your show. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to be on your show and I'm going to do the talking. That's <laughs> that's Mamet, right? Yeah. You can hear that. You watch Gary Gunn Ross, you can hear that style. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I understand that, you know, at the beginning, I wrote like Mammoth, I wrote like Neil Labute. And uh, so I think the fact that he mentioned that he handed in a Mammoth page is not a, a, an accident. And um, he was very influenced by that. And if you watch his the short film that he mentioned that he made, which is called, I'm going to get this wrong, because there's a Jarmish movie, Jim Jarmish movie called Cigarettes and Coffee. But Paul Thomas Anderson's movie is called Coffee and Cigarettes. And what happened is um, he used that money to, to make coffee and cigarettes. Um, and it's not, it's, it's a very accomplished short film still for someone in their early twenties to make. It's, it's very nineties. It takes place in a diner. It's all the Tarantino stuff is there. Um, even though only Reservoir has come out. In fact, the, the uh, uh, one of the cast members is, I guess I would describe as the eventually earless Kirk Baltz, the guy, the cop, is one right. of the cast members in in uh, in coffee and cigarettes, and um, but Philip Baker Hall's in it too, and uh, so is uh, Miguel Ferrer. And what I, uh, if you want to play that clip, one of the reasons I gave you the clip for coffee and cigarettes is so you can hear the mammoth dialogue. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, it's it's labeled cigarettes and coffee, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> however, I've got it. I mean, that's the thing is yeah. you're going to get it mixed up. Yeah. But listen to the repetition of the dialogue, the way that Philip Baker Hall mm. speaks. And we will talk about making sense of the matter once the coffee is poured and the tip of the cigarette is lit and placed in the ashtray. Then we will address the matter. We focus our attention when the time comes. When the coffee has been poured, poured and the cigarette has been lit, yeah, but sometimes these things, they can't wait. Well, that's a common mistake. What is? Not to wait until the coffee is poured and the cigarettes are lit. Look, I, this tradition, this matter of doing things in neat little boxes, it's um, a matter of making urgency wait, is what it is. I get the feeling that following these, these guidelines, these instructions of waiting for the coffee to be poured and all that is only going to get in the way of what I'm trying to tell you. this and I'm going to wait for the coffee to be poured because that is the correct order of business and I'm going to make myself comfortable first and I think you ought to do the same thing <laughs> you can, can you hear the mammoth in that yeah 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 it's it's you know unmistakable what it is and um and but you know it, because it's an early '90s movie, you have the diner, you have the clinking coffee cups, you have in that movie the the chattery uh, uh, 
uh, criminals, uh, the mannered uh, dialogue, and then you also have, uh, as is in every Tarantino movie, you have the shot of the criminal looking down at a dead body, or, or, or a kidnapped body in a trunk, looking up. Uh, I don't know if you got it. Did you did you watch this short film? Uh, no, I didn't. Okay, it's on YouTube again. Not legally available, so you know you're not stealing if you're looking at it. There's no way to get it. It played at Sundance, and that's how he eventually got Hard Eight. Um, but you you get that out of your system, I think, eventually. And what I think, and I mentioned this earlier, we don't have to go through playing the Sundance clip because if we're if we're going to go through this quickly, and I don't want to take too much time. Um, Courtney Vance played the role of that Sam Jackson played in Hard Eight, and if you watch the Sundance clip, um, it's pretty clear that you can hear the mammet in it too. Where he's, let's, he's like, let's watch that clip. It's okay. not that long, right? I don't think so. Well, Sundance clip it's called, right? Uh, mm-hmm. where is, yeah, Sundance. Where? Come on. Um, sorry, folks. I know I saw it before. It's for some reason truncating my uh, uh, Sundance. Sundance. Come on. Oh, here it is. Sorry. John doesn't know that you killed his father, but I will tell him. I will tell John that I'm threatening you with the word. Do you understand? Don't. Do you want me to do that? No. I want ten thousand dollars. I want to keep my mouth shut for you. I don't have. Uh, I don't have ten thousand dollars. I want it, or I will tell John you killed his father. I will find him and tell him. I want ten thousand dollars. I don't have it. I will find him in Niagara Falls and tell him. Ten thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. Can you hear how how much Mammoth is in that? Can you hear yes. the style? Yes. And then yeah. go ahead and play the one from Hard Eight, which I call Jimmy's plan which is Sam Jackson doing the same role. It's basically the same dialogue. Yeah, totally different energy there. Um, so uh, Jimmy's pan- plan, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Turn it off. Oh, don't. Turn the car off, man, or I'll shoot you. I swear to God, I will shoot you in the foot and let it bleed. Now turn it off. Now John doesn't know you killed his father, but I will tell him. I will tell John. I'm threatening you with the word. Do you understand? Yes. You want me to do it? No. Then I want $10,000 to keep my mouth shut for I don't have $10,000, Oh, shit. Yes, you do. No, I don't have it. I will go to Niagara Falls and tell him. No, no. Don't. Please don't. $10,000, Sydney. I, I, all right. I'll get it. Yes, you will. Uh, when? I want it now. No, no, no. I can't now. It's impossible. Bullshit. No, no, right now, it's not possible. This isn't possible. Are you telling me no? No. I, Is that what no, you're saying no, to me? No, no, no. You I'm, fucking idiot. You don't know me. I will put bullets in you for it. Do you understand? All right, I'll get it tomorrow. No, no, no. You can't get it tomorrow. You have to get it now. Jimmy, please it. don't point the gun. I want the money now. You no, hear me? No, no. Jimmy. I want the money just, now. Just don't point the gun, Jimmy. Call please. me a tough guy, huh? Huh? Jesus Christ. Well, I Jimmy. am a tough Christ guy. So this gun in face is real tough, ain't it? Look, I, 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 six thousand dollars. That's what I have. All right. I'll give you all that I have. And that's what you'll give me. Okay, when? <laughs> and see how completely different that is, even though it's pretty much the same dialogue. Right. Different energy same scene. completely, yeah. Totally. And that's why I think that the movie works as it does. So because what happened is he he had the cast in some of the cast in place at Sundance when he went there, he, he showed the short. Everybody loved it. He got some. They said, "Okay, well, we can get some financing for you. The TV market is big. The cable market is big. So they got like, okay, we can get you know eight hundred thousand dollars, and but we can't do it based on the names of John C. Riley and Philip Baker Hall, which is who we had. Now he he cast Riley because he liked him in Casualties of War and in uh, Days of Thunder 
and um, you know, some I'm trying to remember some other movies from that time, but nobody knew who Riley was really. He was just even a today actor. people hardly know him, and even though he's been in so many great things and he's such a great actor, a lot of people still don't know. Him. Right, so versatile, like you know, you can watch him like in a drama or a musical, or or watch him uh, or, or uh, doing cocks and walk hard. He's, he's great in, or doing the Tim and Eric thing, um, <laughs> which he's very funny in. Um, not the Tim, the, the Billy Dollar movie, but I'm trying to remember what's the name of the, the crazy doctor he plays. That's very funny. Uh, um, uh, check it out with Dr. Steve Brule. That's it. It's a very yeah. funny show. Very surreal. Um, but he's so versatile. And um, but that was not a name that you could sell a movie off. Neither was Philip Baker Hall. And what had happened is uh, uh, Anderson had loved Philip Baker Hall from uh, a number of movies, specifically Secret Honor, which is a Robert Altman movie from the 80s when Altman couldn't get couldn't get arrested and he was just adapting plays and um, secret honor uh, is something he shot at the university of Michigan with students in the crew and secret honor is a 90 minute performance by Philip Baker hall playing Richard Nixon on the last nights of his uh, presidency ranting into a tape recorder. Um, And you'd think that's really boring. It is brilliant. I wouldn't uh, no. think that's really boring. I, I would think uh, that's something that just your description of it got me excited. I was like, ah, that, that's something. I can- <laughs> it is great. And, you know, it when you watch it, um, uh, what's unmistakable, especially in this time period, um, is, you know, you're listening to the rantings of an unwell, unsettled person complaining about their enemies, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, airing endless grievances uh you know uh, four years of what we just went through exactly (laughs) complaining about the rothschilds and the bohemian grove (laughs) and uh combining the fascists this jesus freaks and the communists and pretending they're all the same person it is you sit there going i cannot unsee this or unthink what i am thinking um, you'd think this movie would be dated because the cultural references might be different and you don't necessarily know the wars, the specifics of what they're talking about. And it honestly does not matter. Um, we have just been through this for four years. Um, if you want to play that clip. Um, secret, secret honor, yeah. Yes. This is Philip Baker Hall as Nixon. This was a stage play that... <clears throat> Your Honor. May we take the matter of the uh, pardon first? Uh, It was a complete fake. It solved nothing because, uh, well, if there had been a trial and all the rest of it, well, you know, if I had gone to prison, I would be a free man today, a free man. Now, the word pardon has two definitions. First, there is the legal aspect, which is to excuse a convicted man from punishment. Then there is the general definition of the word pardon, which is to forgive. Forgive. (laughs) Forgive them before they ever forgive me. Bastards. Son of a bitches. (laughs) Your Honor, my client has been driven almost mad because he has had to carry the most terrible secrets of all, locked up inside his uh, uh, breaking heart and uh, uh, beating mind. Now, you have read in the press the reasons for the Watergate affair. Today, my client is going to reveal to you the reasons behind the reasons. You, ladies and gentlemen of the American jury, 
shall look at the face that is under the mask that is that is under the mask <laughs> you alone shall judge his life your honor my client has never been convicted of anything therefore technically he was not qualified for a pardon now as to the definition of the word pardon I, look there's been no forgiveness here the whole damn thing has been a sham there's been no trial no legal conviction no punishment instead your honor my client has had to suffer a lifelong personal punishment and uh, torment for what has been called the uh, good of the nation look if the nation knew the real truth why i would be in the position of uh, of de gaulle for instance because i, look, I had to withdraw because... wow <laughs> no it is you think how can you sustain that energy for 90 minutes it is great it has a great ending even though it's just one guy ranting and raving for 90 minutes i don't know how you felt about that clip is that oh pretty pretty powerful is that based on an actual like that what that scene particularly is that based on an actual uh, uh no i mean they start with a with a notion of this is like you know based uh, on what we think might have what it might have been said i mean he curses a ton in it um right. which which nixon did um but it is it is basically what would if it was not filtered what if you just went with the paranoid rantings and ravings of this maniac and who happened to unfortunately yeah. be president yeah while he's getting drunker and drunker and drunker over over the night yeah and, wow um i highly recommend the movie again i know it sounds boring it's just one guy it's not at all if you're um, into, into the nixon story it's not doesn't sound boring you don't all. even need to be into nixon i don't think so i think if you want to understand trump i think it's a lot of it's there now nixon is smarter <laughs> than nixon is smarter than trump but um there were only minor differences after yeah. that, honestly. Yeah. Um, you know, Nixon had a sense of history and had a sense of shame. Maybe that's the big difference. But, um, yeah, no, I highly recommend that. But so he'd seen that, and he'd worked with um, – he met Philip Baker Hall on a PBS docudrama that Hall was working on and said, and pitched him uh, coffee and cigarettes or cigarettes coffee, whichever it is, and said, yeah. I got a short film. And, you know, an actor like that who who is not famous who would say, oh, you know, you've seen – Secret honor, great, and he and he's like, yeah, no, and then that's how they got together to make um, cigarettes and coffee. Um, wow. And the other thing is, he based the script of Hard Eight, and this is what he said, but it's hard to believe, but um, on Sydney uh, on Philip Baker Hall's character in Midnight Run. Now, I watched Midnight Run for this. Um, I don't know if you've seen Midnight Run before with De Niro and Charles Grodin. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I'm trying to remember his. The fact his, that you don't remember it is not is not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so Philip Baker Hall plays Dennis Farina's lawyer. Um, oh right, right. Dennis yeah. Farina is the mobster in the movie. So right. I didn't even put up pull a clip. Can you just pull the picture? Uh, you go. Yeah, I can do that. Well, hold on one second, though. I'm not prepared for this. Share screen and then application window and then this. Yes, Midnight Run. Yeah, there it is. There he is on the right. Now, that dialogue is basically the summary of his entire part. The whole part might as well be, as your lawyer, I cannot advise you to commit this crime Over for three or four scenes. There's nothing else to the part. It's absolutely a zero part. But his character's name is Sidney. And what Anderson did is I want to find out more about that. I want to know who that guy is. And wow. so I guess I can understand that. I mean, the last episode when we discussed the rapture, we talked about um, that thing where you want to expand upon a minor character so you can learn about them. And so that was sort of what he did. And, and because Paul Thomas Jensen is so inspired by uh, Jonathan Demme, as I was, um, especially something wild, but he was inspired by Melvin and Howard, which is the uh, great movie that, that Demme made. And do you know Melvin and Howard? Yes, I do. 
You've seen that one? Yeah. Um, so Melvin and Howard, like Hard Eight, opens with a 20-minute sequence in a car of two guys just talking and then moves on to tell the rest of the story. Um, and what Anderson said was he, he was inspired by that because um, – he understood he didn't he didn't have the movie when he first started writing it, but he realized that you you'll figure out a movie if you just put two people in a coffee shop and get them to start talking. You'll figure it out. And that's what Melvin and Howard is like. Put them in a van, just get them talking. Put them in a coffee shop, just get them talking. Um, and I totally agree with the premise. Like if you can't figure out what your script is, just go with that. Right. Um, I, I realize I'm doing all the talking here. I no, that's you... that's fine. You should be doing all the talking because you know about this. I just looked at it uh, from a uh, purely I'm going to to try to enjoy this movie and not not really try to be too an- analytical about it. And again, when, once you, I like him, and I, I it's weird that I like him because I think he's cast perfectly in the Bookman part on this on the Seinfeld mm-hmm. thing. Yes, and yes. I think that that's him. Uh, so <laughs> to see him in a serious role because he he does that even though he's serious in the, in the Seinfeld thing, he's serious in an over the top comedic way that still mm-hmm. makes it still makes it funny. Well, do you do you want to play that? I mean, I know we're gonna we hit a, might have a copyright strike we, problem. We, so yeah, we might. I'll, I'll set it up a little bit. Um, so you know he he. he you wouldn't think you would get uh, like, oh, I, the guy was in Secret Honor. But I think the real breakthrough is something like this Seinfeld episode, which is season three, episode four, I believe. And right. it's it's an episode where Jerry um, turns out has le- lost a book at the, you know from 20 years before. And Philip Baker Hall doesn't show up until about act two of the episode. But he's he just controls the screen. Right. And if you watch the episode... Uh, what you'll notice is they keep cutting around Jerry's reactions because he almost is laughing, and in the commentary, the reveal is that they couldn't give a, they couldn't give Jerry a close up because he couldn't stop laughing. Right, um, you can see he's pretty he starts can, to you, break up. You can up see or... it, but they had to cut around it. And yeah. Philip Baker Hall shows up, does does Joe Friday from Dragnet, does does noir basically, which is yeah. what 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 Hard Eight is, and in my mind, completely uh, collapses the notion of a sitcom by playing it so sort of hard and sincere. That it's hilarious, but it just makes everything about a sitcom like feel very flat because everyone else is doing bigger, broader acting, and he's doing this super specific thing. Well, so to premise- me, it feels like an SNL skit a little bit. His presence, his presence in the in that that uh, sitcom. It's like wow! All of a sudden, we went out of like. Uh, sitcom and we're doing like comedic improv where one guy is just being so serious and trying to crack other people up that, that was right but it's it's working though i think yeah, yeah. i think he he outshine he makes you know especially jerry's acting which was never very good look <laughs> you know kind of puny and the yeah. premise is that he's playing a character named Mr. Bookman, who is trying to figure out where this book went, and he's he's collecting. Him. He's like he's a book cop essentially. He's a he's the book FBI, and he shows right. up at Jerry's house. Right. I'm gonna play it. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're here, so we can get this all straightened out. Would you like a cup of tea? You got any coffee? Coffee? Yeah, coffee. No, I don't drink coffee. Yeah, you don't drink coffee. How about instant coffee? No, I don't have. You don't have any instant coffee? Well, I don't normally. Who doesn't have instant coffee? I don't. You buy a jar of Folgers crystals, you put it in a cupboard, you forget about it. And later on, when you need it, it's there. It lasts forever. It's freeze-dried. Freeze-dried crystals. Really? I'll have to remember that. You took this book out in 1971. Yes, and I returned it in 1971. Yeah, 71. That was my first year on the job. Bad year for libraries. Bad year for America. Hippies burning library cards. Abby Huffman telling everybody to steal books. I don't judge a man by the length of his hair or the kind of music he listens to. Rock was never my bag. But you put on a pair of shoes when you walk into the New York Public Library, fella. Look, Mr. Bookman. 
I, I returned that book. I remember it very specifically. You're a comedian. You make people laugh. I try. You think this is all a big joke, don't you? <laughs> no, I don't. I saw you on TV once. I remembered your name from my list. I looked it up. Sure enough, it checked out. You think because you're a celebrity that somehow the law doesn't apply to you, that you're above the law? Certainly not. Well, let me tell you something funny, boy. <laughs> you know that little stamp? The one that says New York Public Library? Well, that may not mean anything to you, but that means a lot to me. One whole hell of a lot. Sure, go ahead, laugh if you want to. I've seen your type before. Flashy, making the scene, flaunting convention. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. It's this guy making such a big stink about all library books. Well, let me give you a hint, Junior. Maybe we can live without libraries, people like you and me. Maybe. Sure, we're too old to change the world. But what about that kid? sitting down, opening a book right now in a branch of the local library and finding drawings of peepees and wee-wees and the cat in the hat and the five Chinese brothers. Doesn't he deserve better? Look, if you think this is about overdue fines and missing books, you better think again. This is about that kid's right to read a book without getting his mind warped. Or maybe that turns you on, Seinfeld. Maybe that's how you get your kicks. You and your good time buddies. Well, I got a flash for you, Joy Boy. Party time is over. You got seven days, Seinfeld. That is one week. And he just walks off of the episode. He appears basically one more time, right. and it's completely memorable. I mean, watching that clip now, what's your what's your reaction to it? Well, I, I saw you cracking up while you were watching it. Yeah, I love that. I think yeah. that that made because Seinfeld. Most people aren't aware of this. Seinfeld kind of struggled in the beginning, and I think that episode was the one that kind of put yeah, that them is on the turning the map. point. Yeah, yeah. That's, that that episode is the turning point. They and were pre- they were preempted the next week. By right. like some TV movie or something, right? And I, I'm wondering how much of that. Uh, Go on, you think it's funny? I'm thinking that uh, that was kind of uh, improv. I'm I'm not necessarily in the script. So, oh, you think it's funny? Eh? Because he saw Jerry cracking up and he wanted yeah. to kind of save him and carry him through the scene. Right. <laughs> just, well, there's that problem when you shoot when you shoot three camera live. You know, you don't want to yeah. shoot it again. You won't have that energy. Right. Yeah. Um, so you all you can do is just cut and and stay on 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 Philip Baker Hall, but you need the reaction occasionally to yeah, just yeah. see how ridiculous this is and over the top it is. It's yeah. look, it's a fantastic episode of Seinfeld, but he but he honestly like devalue he he devalues what sitcoms are because he's so great in it because it just reveals kind of the puny nature of like what happens when you are sincere in a sitcom. Like right. the structure of that episode is very interesting. It's kind of a new way they started to do that episode. Um, anybody who hasn't seen that episode, I highly recommend it. He has another great scene later in the episode too. And there's a meme now. It's just a bookman book cop that, that's all mm-hmm. over the place. So it's ab- obviously one of the more memorable moments. Yeah, of and it's been 30 years since that episode, and it's, it still holds up. <laughs> yeah. But you know, just his presence isn't going to sell a movie. So they're like, they have to get somebody else. You know, it takes them a, y- a year after the Sundance stuff before before Sam Jackson and Gwyneth Paltrow are available. They they do that. They get three million dollars from a TV company. Uh, called Reicher Entertainment. Um, a guy named Robert Jones puts the whole thing together. And then Anderson shoots the movie over five weeks, but he shuts out Jones, who who had, in the meantime, in that year, had gone off to produce The Usual Suspects. And that becomes its own problem because he doesn't know anyone at Reicher and he doesn't have the producer on his side either. So they pull, they take the movie, they fire him, 
because he's insisting on this two and a half hour cut of, of at the time a movie called Sydney, which is what originally it was called. And they didn't like that title because it sounds like it's about Australia. Um, so they yeah. give us this nonsensical titled Heart Eight, which doesn't really mean anything, but probably because they're thinking of, oh, well, this will air on Showtime at two in the morning. And, uh, you know, the word hard is going to suggest something. But this movie can't keep up with what all the movies you think, oh, well, Hard Eight, you know, it's almost yeah. pornographic in nature. And um, <laughs> there's no nudity in this movie at all, which is funny because one of the influences on this film is called Bob Le Flambeau, Bob the Gambler. It's a French film, uh, uh, 1956, which has all the same characters, um, uh, you know, aging gambler, uh, the, uh, the, in, the, in, the very influenced younger guy. Uh, who wants to learn the ropes, uh, the sexually voracious woman who's sleeping around and is going to turn on them, and then the pimp who, um, uh, you know, screws them all over in, in, in the end. And But but halfway, like the first half of Bob LaFlambeau is very similar to Heart 8, and he acknowledges right. it as much. Um, but it was made in 1956, and the second half of the movie is a, is a heist movie, and it's one of the very first um, let's get the team together movies. It, might, it may be the first. Um, like it's before the first Ocean's Eleven. Uh, and before any of that stuff. Um, but what's striking about it, even though it's made in 1956, it has more nudity in it than Hard Eight does. Um, wow. uh, even though, you know, he didn't have the, the censorship restrictions. Now, he didn't have the censorship restrictions in France anyway. Um, but uh, still, you know, you'd have to be a bit demure regardless. But just the notion of like, he made this movie and it's almost for no one, right? Because who is Philip Baker Hall? Who Who is John C. Riley? who are really the main characters? You know, Philip Baker Hall once said that, um, you know, he, he specialized in, quote, older troubled men carrying great emotional burdens with problems that there is no way to resolve, which is utterly true, but not something you can bank a whole movie on, especially because right. this is really a character piece. That's um, why I thought the casting was so odd, even though I love uh, John C. Riley, uh, He wasn't a movie star then. He's not a, really a mo what we call a movie star now, even though he's a great actor and, and people who appreciate acting see him as a great actor. He's not he a gets movie no star. He gets nominated and his movies get nominated for Best Picture and he's an unsung hero in so many right. movies. And even um, Sam yes. Jackson wasn't a movie star at that time. He, right. You know, <laughs> nobody in it. Was, I mean, even if uh, Paltrow wasn't a movie star. So there really is no name. And I thought that, you know, Heart 8 was a, an unusual title, too, because while dice players will know it, even among the gambling world, dice players is a very small niche. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, guys who play roulette, guys who play uh, blackjack, they're not going to really relate to that hard eight. So I thought that was an odd way to, to name the film, too. So I think they just wanted something that sounded like some softcore movie. Like yeah. yeah, it does. And I understand, like, okay. So what happens with the movie is um, they, they fire him because he won't cut down his two-and-a-half-hour cut. He sends one of his – he sends his two-and-a-half-hour cut to Sundance, and that holds them off because it's like – that. it does really well at Sundance. But he, they said, all right, well, you've got 60 days to try to sell this. He gets nobody interested. And then he's like, all right, we're taking it away from you again. And then he cuts his own version um, using the new the uh, uh, the new Boogie Nights money that he has because um, he's just been hired to make Boogie Nights. They just bought his script. He takes $230,000, $200,000 from Boogie Nights and $30,000 from some of the actors in the film to both hire uh, Michael Penn to do the score and also um, to recut the movie to what eventually was what the movie is, which is around 96 minutes pre-credits. And... Um, he sends that version to Cannes. Reicher sends their cut to Cannes, but Cannes won't screen the uh, the non-director's cut. So that's the version that comes out. He lo he loses the movie again after this, but they're like, but it does really well at Cannes. And 
they're gonna they're like okay well we'll 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 release your cut um but we're gonna call it hard eight he's like no 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 i want to call it sydney that's what it's called and then they and he's like look we can we'll, we'll release our cut and call it hard eight and you won't have any say in the matter he's like all right fine release my cut but call it hard eight fine right. so that's what the version we have is Damn um, business man unbelievable yeah exactly and he and the movie disappeared like as i said earlier the dvd goes for like 30 dollars on ebay um it's long out of print um and the blu-ray is only available in australia so your amazon prime is one of your options unless you want to go an alternate way which if that's what you got to do that's what you got to do i'm not making any suggestions um yeah. but if a movie if a movie has disappeared i mean it came out the same year as uh uh as as boogie nights but it's like it never happened yeah. um but um uh so and one of the things that ha- so uh, uh i i wanted because you're you're a music guy and I was curious about what you thought about the score. Loved it. I mean, right from the start, I said, well, this is unusual. It's like a musician wrote this movie. That's what well, I felt like. it's true, because Michael Penn wrote the score. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, then, and then what I love about it, so you get the simple xylophone stuff in it, and yeah. then you have what is essentially, they, br- they break down the song that plays over the end credits, which is Christmas Time by Michael Penn and Amy Mann, who's his, who's his wife right. um, in real life and who later uh, wrote all the music for Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Um, and if you listen to Christmas time in the version in the movie that plays over the end credits, you can hear little bits of that song throughout the score of Heart Eight, which wow. is usually you wouldn't do it that way, but you can totally hear like, you know, and that's, that's the theme in, in uh, Christmas time. And so I was wow. curious, like, you know, it's a lot of, it's very simple. And then, but a lot of it like gives you a rush because there's not so much of it. There's right. not, you know, it's not everywhere. So I was wondering if you could play um, uh, just the one track that I sent you, which is called Clementine's Loop, which he later used in Boogie Nights as well. And he plays yeah. it at the beginning in, of Heart Eight. And it also when um, Gwyneth Paltrow is struggling about figuring out whether he, she, she's going to sleep with uh, Philip Baker Hall. Right. This is a little more tricky. So let's see, make sure I can do this. Okay. All right, that's probably plenty. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's repetitive. But I love just, just the feeling you get of just like doom is coming. Doom is coming. Uh, odd. That's an odd waltz. because that's yeah. in th- It's a waltz, but it, it you don't usually associate that dread, that, that sound of dread and feeling of dread with a waltz. Uh, that's an unusual approach to it. And, and, and the way that they left in the sort of... Um, uh, uh, gramophone noises in the background, like the record, the record right. player, yeah, like yeah. that. That's a diff- different way of going about it. And so, something as uh, filled with a Boogie Nights, which is filled with all this period seventies disco music, to then throw that in during the most harrowing scenes of the movie, um, which is where it appears, is like a neat little reprise in, in a right. sense. But it appears twice in Heart Eight, and the only reason it's at the beginning of Heart Eight is because the producer that he alienated refused to. Um, 
uh, move his. So normally you, you, in a contract, you have like, okay, my credit appears at the beginning and at the end, you know, with certain actors and producers and everyone agreed to move their production credit just to the end, except for that one producer that, that uh, he alienated and got him the money. So he said, no, you have to leave the credits there. So he has to reconstruct the entire first sequence to open. And then he puts this music in there and you're like, wait a minute, that turned out to be a stroke of genius. (laughs) That turned out to work really, really well. Um, (laughs) Happy action. um, Right. Um, Cause you, you, so, so one of the things that he does uh, exceptionally well um, that differentiates most filmmakers um, is he shows the body in certain parts. So most movie, Filmmaking is head close-ups, face, that kind of stuff. You know, everything is glamorous. Now, so this isn't a glamorous movie. We see full bodies. We see things from the neck down. There's that great sequence where Gwyneth Paltrow thinks she's he's a uh, he's going to propose that they have sex. And we, feeling we, herself we, up, man. Yeah, we <laughs> neck down, neck down. All that's that's all you see. And he said he got that from the Hustler, which has a similar sequence. And I thought, oh, that's great. And if you want to play that that first clip, which I think I called uh, regular karate. Um, um, video files regular hard eight regular karate. All right, here it is. You watch the the a the use of the music is great. I'll tell too. you what, you come with me back to Vegas. I'll loan you fifty dollars. I'll show you what you did wrong. Why? What? What? What are you, man? You, you think you think you're Saint Francis or something? I don't think I'm St. Francis. I look, are you looking for a f***? Because I'm not some boy hooker, if that's what you're after. I'm not looking for a hooker, John. I'm offering you a ride. I'm offering to teach you something. Yeah, well, I'm telling you something right now. I don't suck a dick, okay? I understand that. And this is the last time I'll ask. You want my help? I'll fuck you up if you fuck with me. I know three types of karate, okay? Jiu-jitsu, Aikido, and regular karate. Okay. All right. A, you give me a ride. Two, you give me 50 bucks. And C, I sit in the back. And believe me, if you pull anything, I will fuck you up. I believe you. All right. There's so to me, there's so much to that. Um, the the shot right, of the body. What's that? Go for it, because I I, I want to ask what what is the um what is the reason for hanging on the table after they leave and then kind of just slowly kind of well uh, because zip, because of the point about about like you know you have a conversation. How do you get people talking? You get them smoking and having a cup of coffee. And so right. he's like, "Here's how we got here." He offered him the coffee and the cigarettes outside. How would I do this? And like he shows you, here's here's what really led to this: is zooming in on the coffee and the cigarettes, and then fading to the title and that uh-huh. up, you know, that uplifting music. Um, and w- it's amazing because that scene is so depressing to that point, right? He's describing his, 
you know, I can't bury my mother, you know, there's nobody else, blah, blah, blah. And, and then that music starts to build and then you just start to go, oh, okay. And then the comedy starts, uh, uh, you know, uh, I know three types of karate. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, regular karate, yeah. and regular karate. And then he, and then he does the whole like a, Two and C, like I love yeah, that. Yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah. But you would never think to do that. You would never think, okay, I'm just going to turn this into like a comedy piece and have the other guy not take it seriously, and then you don't know the guy's motives. And because you said earlier, uh, I wouldn't have gone with him. But would you have gone with him at that point when he's like, you know, fine, I'll agree to your rules? No, I, I think, uh, and I, I understand because he was desperate. But me, I would, I, I have this thing in my mind that nobody is going to be nice to me for no reason. They want something. And th- there's nothing, it, he hasn't been clear about what he's going to get out of it. And that that would always keep me suspect. Like, I don't trust this guy. I know I, if I, the, in that position, if I was with a friend, right, and, and that, that kind of thing happened, and my friend trusted him, I would be more likely to go with him. But if it was just me on my own, like John C. Riley is in that position, um, there's no way. I don't think he could he could earn my trust until he explains to me sincerely what's in it for him. <laughs> well, when think of it this way: when you learn what the actual secret was, does that make even make even more sense? Yeah, yeah. That he's uh, that he's atoning for his actions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, totally did at that point, but uh, you know, it, it's not in in John C. Riley's mind or John the character's mind at that point. See, so he's got to be wondering, like, what the frick is this old man getting out of this? Why is he doing it? And uh, he never learns that. In, no, in the, no, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's there's plenty of stuff where you're where you're you know you're like how much of this is him just get, going along to get along and this you know the, his life is moving forward and he's just trying to hold on. Yeah, I mean yeah. that whole puppy dog thing is so great. There's this moment. One of my favorite. There's so many. I have so many favorite things in the film, but one of them is after uh, Sydney shows him the ropes on how to get a room, and he's in the room with Sydney, and Sydney talks to him, and then he's like, "Do you want to?" He's like, "Can I watch you gamble?" And he's like, yeah, go ahead, follow me on the floor. That's fine. And then you watch John C. Riley velcro up his shoes. Yeah, yeah. Going right. both ways. And I'm like, God, what a child. Um, he just he had to be instructed that he had to shave and he had to look clean, but he's wearing velcro shoes. Right. right. I thought about that too at the moment. Subconsciously, I was like, wow. And they're, they're and I even said out loud, Well, they're taking a long time to focus on him doing this. There must be a reason for it. <laughs> well, but it's this it's the subtext of that and that at that moment he is hooked. And that everything that he that that uh, Sydney does, he's going to do. He's going to follow right. along. There's um I guess we can skip around a little little bit more um cuz I uh can you cut to the one of the clips to show how much he's trying to impress um uh Sydney. This I call it the clip's called Honeymoon. Play mm-hmm. honeymoon clip. So he's brought he's brought him in this afternoon. Right? I am glad to see you are having a wonderful honeymoon. Sid, Sid, wait, where are you going? But that little bit, right? Like he needs approval in the moment where he's doing something vicious and violent and totally foolish tells you how sucked in he is yeah um and um you know it's it's sort of at the midpoint of the movie that's that's like just past the midpoint so the first 45 maybe 50 minutes 
is all of these people just this is this is the process by which they live their lives. This is the gambling. This is what happens. Blah blah blah. And then there's the turn at the midway point when he's woken up by the phone call and John saying, "I need help." Right. Now, in your mind, so that's a very very long scene. Apparently, it was 16 pages. Wow. You know, into the hotel room, into the, and out onto the street, um, all that stuff. And then he delays and he delays and he never wants to show you what's going on. Like you can, we don't get to see it, and and Sydney doesn't get to see like there's a body on there and how stupid. Open this whole the thing goddamn is. door, John. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But even when he's <laughs> in, he won't turn on the lights, and he, and yeah. the camera won't show it to him. And this goes on and on. How did you feel about it at that point? Like, because it's a very I, long scene. Just frustrated, like really. I I know there's a mystery here that he's not revealing for some reason what the hell could it be i mean like did he murder the girl what the hell happened uh and it it's just like it, i was getting frustrating at that point i, I remember i remember feeling like a little okay so w- was it was it working for you even though you were frustrated you were frustrated yeah i was sydney work. i was open yeah. the goddamn door john come on right <laughs> I, was, I was inhabiting that character at that point <laughs> One thing I want to just briefly mention as an aside, one way you can tell that someone is maturing is the way that like little details in their movie advance. So in Cigarettes and Coffee, uh, the premise, the, there's a premise about the, this, uh, the, 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 the cop from Reservoir Dogs is in the movie. He wins $8,000 on, on a $20 bill. That's like part of the premise of the short. Right. And in Hard Eight, Sidney tells John that there's no way he can win $6,000 for a funeral on $50. So right. apparently he's matured to realize that that is unreasonable. And that's what one of the things about Hard Eight that I find so interesting is that it's about this lower middle class criminal, right? And it's about this thing like you never think about. Um, he, he talked about in one of the commentaries about how you could probably gamble all day and live a lower middle class lifestyle. You know, if you're, if you're sitting there for eight hours, you could not necessarily beat the odds, but you won't go broke. And he's like, man, you probably make, you know, 12 to $15 an hour. But, you know, essentially what would now be a minimum wage job, right? Right, um, yeah. And and that's what's so interesting is you're watching this, you know, this life be passed. You know, you have this uh, this character who's who's, um, you know, uh, Sam Jackson threatens him and he's like, I don't don't kill me. Don't kill me. And you think to yourself, what exactly are you living for? Like, are you going to go see John C. Riley and, and 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 Gwyneth Paltrow? Like they're screw ups. Like, that's pretty clear. Like, they're right. just going to keep screwing up in this script. It's even more clear how screwed up they are. Like it's just they just keep making more and more mistakes, and John C. Riley's character is so on edge. He like throws a fit at a waiter who 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 smiles at at them while while they're like you know on their way to Niagara Falls, um, <laughs> and it's just like this is not going to end well. So it is this fascinating conundrum where you're watching a thing in which you know this isn't um, uh, a, a great like this isn't a great life for this guy, but for some reason he's he's dead set on protecting it for some reason like right. this self-preservation what's this about yeah um, again having grown up in that world there and there are still those guys who uh are day gamblers and they do it every single day and they they are middle class lower middle class gamblers and that's their life and uh it's like an addiction it definitely is like an addiction it's the same thing as a, a heroin addict or a coke addict uh, you know it's not good for you but it, it you know you're hooked <laughs> so how did how did that scene with Phil Hoffman ring to you? Which I uh, love that scene. I love. I think that's great. I think that's so. Funny. Uh, again, uh, the scene itself, I, I, I kind of get lost in the moment because I, you know, I'm thrilled with with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think he's just a great actor, and I thought he was he was playing it to the point where I've seen that guy. I know that guy. He's he's extremely real, and that's what you know. He, I. I 
there was that's one of the more real scenes I've ever seen in cinema because I've known that guy. I've seen I've been I've stood next to him at the tables. <laughs> and so uh, that's all I could think about at the time. I kind of got lost in what was happening in the movie. And, and, and as you should, I mean, he, you know, Hoffman, if you read the script, that scene is not really on the page. It was it's a very basic description. And Anderson talked about in the commentary that he brought Hoffman and Hoffman was not famous at that point. He knew him from Scent of a Woman. And then from that point on, he was in every Phil, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie apart from um, There Will Be Blood because there's not really a role for him in that. Um, right. And he's in every single one after that. And he's just like that's where he grew. And that's how he became like a star from the character work that he was getting through. Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, he's got a small role in Senate Woman. You won't you wouldn't remember him necessarily, but you know, obviously Anderson pays attention to this stuff. Right. Um, and retains those those thoughts. Do you mind playing that Phil Hoffman clip? Uh, yeah. I, I would notice, I mean, I love the the bit and I love what he's doing, but also notice the Harry Shearer looking extra standing next to uh Philip Baker Hall. Come on, old time, you gonna join us here, my friend? Come on. There's Harry Shearer guy on the left. Look at him. I don't wait for oh, yeah. old people. I don't wait for old people. <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's see those. Here we go. Ain't easy, ain't right on a point of eight, better back on. Okay, I'm going to light a cigarette now, old timer. See, the thing is, I like you, and I'm going to light a cigarette, and I'm going to let you have this time to place your bet before I finish lighting this cigarette. And then when I finish lighting, I'm just going to roll and fuck you. <laughs> You're laughing at that? I just said, fuck you to the man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the way you look, I think you know what I'm saying, old timer. I think you do. Jesus Christ, why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun. <laughs> All right, shaka laka doo. Shaka laka dooby dooby doo. Shaka laka doo. You got a little bit more there. Coming in there, baby. Shaka laka doo, baby. I'm almost lighting it, baby. I'm not allowed to cigarette, old timer. What are you gonna do? Two thousand dollar hard eight. Two thousand dollar hard eight's a bet. The fuck? <laughs> oh man, you play that game, don't you? Oh shit! <laughs> You're big time. You are big time. <laughs> oh, card eight. Oh, okay, here we go. All right, here we go. All right. This is for you, big time. All right, I'm not even looking. Here we go. Eight. Six. Hard six. Hard six. That's a hard six, old timer. That's not bad for me. That's not bad for me, is it, sister? It is Sister Sledge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could just watch that all day. I watched this movie. This movie is like comfort food to me, so it's just, which is a weird way to put it. But I, I could just put on any part of it and just and just get something. <laughs> yeah, he's really good in that. And he just—I mean, all that stuff is made up. That shaka laka d shaka laka. Just that's not on the page. It's not in the script. They just—they just went with it. Wow. And I think the scene is key because it shows Sydney's weakness. It shows like he can be triggered. He can be, you know. He yeah. can be fall out of the calm lifestyle. I mean, that's what's interesting about the Sam Jackson character is that he's triggering him. He's like, he's like behaving in an obnoxious manner. He's completely classless. And um, it, it bothers Sydney. He doesn't want the waitresses to be treated that way. But it's really like, uh, this makes me look bad. You know, this right. is all about the the mirage I have built, this 
this facade that that doesn't really exist in in which you know I'm an honorable man you know in in this realm but outside in the outside world it doesn't mean anything right and so Sam Jackson disturbed me so I did you know if you know this world then I was curious because I did see one comment uh, suggesting that the movie was racist because the because of the way that that Sam Jackson's character is written and that he's the, the more overt crass villain um, and I had a thought which is maybe you know because he's an because uh, Sydney's an old hood that maybe like there is a little bit of racism on the character's part in that. But I don't know if that, cause he's from Atlantic city and maybe, maybe that would have been like that in New Jersey when he was like, you know, a real gangster in say the sixties or the fifties. Well, um, racism is, was definitely, and still is a huge part of that. Well, you know, uh, that underworld goes along with a lot of classless, um, in behaviors that have been part for uh, of the, the system forever and resistance to change. So, and all those guys, they, even if they don't like overtly use the, the language of racism, uh, mm-hmm. they find, they find, you know, instead of using like the N word, uh, they use words like Moulinian, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> you know, but it's still there and it's all part of everything. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's in everything they do. So yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if it was in the script intentionally, but I, I kind of had that when he was yelling at, cause Sam, Sam Jackson was playing that kind of um, very crude, loud mouth, not aware of his uh or or claiming he actually was aware but he knows the situation he knows the environment better than uh than the old right. guy does but uh, yeah i i thought that was meant uh not necessarily meant but i thought it was part of the character with with craft because he was black no i i feel that I, I don't feel that the movie's racist at all but i think that that's certainly part of it and in fact in the script there's an additional scene for for jimmy sam jackson's character where he calls a waitress over and says, "Are you okay with me saying what he says?" Right, right. Like, right. It, to, 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 he says a remarkably crude thing, and she has to play along because right. she's in. The, she's there. She's like, you know, oh yeah, no, I'm fine with it. And he like slaps her on the ass. Right. And it's just like you know, everyone stating their place. Everyone is in their environment. Here's 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 where I am on the totem pole, and here's where you are. All that stuff. Right. And it's and it serves. It's there's this perfect moment near the end um, after Sydney has paid off Sam Jackson. Um, and he's, they're hiding out in the kitchen and Sam Jackson leans into him as if he's going to say something in his ear. And then he kind of waves it away. He goes, ah, whatever. And it's just this moment of here's my subtle intimidation. Right. Here's the thing here. Here's, you know, and, and what does Sam Jackson do? He just goes out on the town. He does. And he, he just settles for like, if you remember in the movie, he settles for $6,000. Right. What kind of extortion is $6,000? Right. Like, it's just so sloppy. It's just this, like his afterthought, like you think it would just go away. Yeah, so looked, I think I think I think the conception of the character makes it fine. Sorry, what was what was Yeah, he just I just thought the first thing he did was go out and buy a a a five hundred dollars suit with the, with uh, half with, right. with a portion of that six hundred dollars a uh, six thousand dollars. And I thought, wow, that's money you could be playing with. I mean, it's uh, in my mind that was an unnecessary expense if you're right. a gambler and serious about making money gambling. It looked like he was winning though. It was hard to tell. Yes. Well, yeah, because he plays a hard eight and he wins. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know anything about gambling, so I assume that you would win a lot of money on a hard eight. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think the odds on something like, depending on how much was was bet, but the odds I think are uh, what it pays is I think ten to one. Oh, okay. So he might have made you know twenty grand on that play. Right. Right. 
Um, so uh, I, I've been skipping around a lot, but um, uh, I, I did mention earlier that whole thing about showing the full body, and I wanted you to play that roaming the casino clip. Yeah. So because it's it's this in the in the guy in the element, and it's just this amazing steady cam shot following. You know, this is the facade. This is Philip Baker Hall in his element. You would not normally ever see this. You would not normally see this much of an actor on the move, not talking. And this takes place just after the Sam Jackson scene, the earlier one. And, and you remember I mentioned about the music? This is just redoing Christmas time. But a xylophone music. Right. And there he ends up, you know, as in his throne. Respect to the pit boss, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he's living that fantasy there. I think that's just a remarkable sequence that, you, that most people would be like, uh, I'm leaving it out. But also you see his full body. You see like who he is entirely. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I was wondering where he's going. Like, what? Where is this leading to? It seemed like I. I remember during that that moment where he's walking. I'm thinking this is a long time for him just to get to where he's going. What What's the story being told here? And why? Well, you're getting the location. You're getting the sense of everything. You're getting. You're understanding it. I mean, it's a lo- very low budget movie, but they they use the space very well, and that's just really that's a great camera move. That's it's so smooth. It's so slick. It's telling you everything. It's telling you about the people in the in the casino. I mean. You know, one of the most amazing, tragic things in the whole film is early on. And it tells you everything about the film itself and about what it thinks about gambling and about what it thinks about these people. Do you remember in the in the in the early scene where John C. Riley's gambling with the, the twenty dollars and he's he's doing it in this mach- next to this, he's pulling the, the thing and the machine is going and it's pulling up the numbers, and right next to them is a couple. Was who a bride, just got married, the, yeah, and she's got a neck brace on. And you <laughs> think to yourself, this is the most tragic thing. Like, did they get married because he's still in his tuxedo and she's still in her wedding dress did they get married and go right to the casino and she yes, got into an did. accident on the way did how did she get the wedding dress over over the neck brace no uh, yeah mm-hmm. I, I the, the seediness of las vegas came through in that moment absolutely yeah. and i thought well this is very typical of people who uh end up getting married in las vegas you know that's a doomed marriage to begin with i mean I, i'm sure there are some people who got married in vegas who it's worked out but typically uh people who get married in vegas are there for a vice they're there for a vice, and the wedding is coincidental. You know, the hangover stuff is kind of not that far, far fetched in in the world where you know I got drunk and got married last night. Oh, what? <laughs> well, but aren't you glad this didn't go into sort of hangover kind of territory? Yeah, that yeah, it didn't yeah. become farce. Yeah, because yeah. there's so many movies about stupid criminals, right? Right. Especially that era, like Bottle Rocket and um, Safe Men and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, and like criminals at this level, this sort of lower middle class level like gonna dumb guys and that's the comedy or the elmore leonard stuff and it's not like i don't like those movies bottle rocket's one of my favorite films the wes anderson movie um but 
um, I think it's so unique that it takes this seriously. Like I, I, you know, I thought of Bob Flambeur, but also thought of um, and watched uh, the great Robert Mitchum movie, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which I so highly recommend, um, which is about lower middle class criminals and what a drag it is. Um, and uh, Peter Boyle uh, is in it, and um, or Alex Rocco, and it's just like you know the hours you got to put in and the stuff you got to put up with. And it's just, and there's this, these endless sequences of this, this guy who sells guns and all this nonsense he has to go through as if you were like, as if his job was like, you know, filling up toner on copiers or something, but he's selling guns. And it's just, it's, it's the one of the most honest movies about like, probably what that's really like is like, what yeah, yeah. like a criminal. Um, so if you, if anyone listening, get the friends of Eddie Coyle, highly recommended movie, Robert Mitchum, one of his best performances, but that's what I think of is like, you know, you have the, comedic version which they still do uh welcome to collinwood or masterminds or you know any of these things where it's the it's the comedic criminal in which there's the immediacy of well they're either going to go to jail or they're going to uh you know you know get the big score and 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 or or they're gonna or it's gonna be funny and we're gonna laugh at him and then that's how this is gonna work out and this movie doesn't do that at all there's no big thing there's no heist there's no it's just you know, that's why the ending works, because we don't need the big splashy thing where at the end of the script, Sydney is killed um, by the guy in the motel room because he ruined his marriage. And it seems just too coincidental. It's 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 like it's too neat, you know, and that's not how anything would really work. I don't mm. think. Yeah. Um, and um, one of the things one of the scenes I did want to talk about, too, is because um, I briefly mentioned the whole thing with Gwyneth Paltrow in the hotel room, like like holding her pants. Yeah. And, and and I love that bit, but there's a bit earlier. Um, uh, so I, I, the scene is called uh, Clem and Sydney in the diner and in the room. Um, oh, and I'll set it up just for one second. Um, so they're in a diner. And one first thing it told me is apparently this is all that Sydney eats all the time. So everything is fried food constantly. No one has meals. Nobody has home cooked anything. And, you know, Clem doesn't have anything either. Right. Like he's saying, oh, I, you need to you need a home cooked meal. You 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 need. You need this. You need blah blah. You need you need uh, to sleep in a nice bed, even though she's got an apartment. She said so. Um, she's like, but I got a bills. I got a Camaro. That's but that's all she's got in her life. So watch this scene, which is just them con- talking about their emotional backstory. All right, here you go. You took care of him, sort of. And you paid for a funeral. We worked it out. I think he's pretty adorable, the way he follows you around and looks up to you. <laughs> he orders the same drinks as you, you know? He dresses the same. We share the same taste, I guess. So do you have real kids, like kids of your own? Yes. You married? My boy and a girl, I know I'm divorced. I have a boy about your age. Daughter, two years older. Where do they live? I'm not sure. I haven't spoken to them in a while. That's too bad. Yeah. Maybe you'll see them. Maybe. Okay, pause for one second. Yeah, what was that all about? I get oh, pausing is hard. How do you pause? It? There you go. Okay, so I love that little bit. That's not in the script, and that was obviously something. It seems like it was it was improvised, or some extra was really annoyed at someone, and then they just went with the, went with the take, like in the way that uh, uh, if you ever watched The Wolf of Wall Street, when when McConaughey is improvising, 
uh, and doing his uh, 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 bit. If you've seen The Wolf of Wall Street, yeah, yeah, and he's doing that. You can watch um, DiCaprio look off screen and Scorsese like, "Are we are we shooting? Are we continuing to roll?" Um, and they just go along with it, and then the scene like that's probably the best scene in that movie. Um, and in this case, it's reality just entered into this sort of emotional catharsis of them revealing that that uh, you know that he, he they they're both they're both alone basically, right? That they right. both have nothing, and that 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 is oh and here's someone else's uh, terrible reality like they're you know someone's breaking up with a fiance i don't want anything to do with this whatever whatever the reason for that is because because obviously if that happened in real life you just do take two or you'd put other extras there it's not like they're focused but also you get a sense of paltrow and like the makeup that she's got there like it's kind of smeared yeah and the sadness and yeah. and it sets up uh that seems really important because it sets up uh the whole notion the theme that Anderson goes back to all the time, which is surrogate families, right. um, which is recreating like the father, the daughter, right. you know, and, 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 you know, all, and, and, and the, and the son and all that stuff. And even in Boogie Nights, which has very similar ideas, um, the, the, the son and the daughter also sleep with each other, but, you know, roller girl and um, Marky Mark, you know, have a sexual relationship. And that's a surrogate family with a, you know, broken, broken family divorce. Everyone, you know, uh, in, in heart eight, John C. Riley. His f- mother and father are dead. You know, uh, obviously Gwyneth Paltrow doesn't have anything. Sydney doesn't have anything. Boogie Nights, same thing. Magnolia, same thing. That's about absent, abusive fathers and trying to recreate those surrogate families. Um, so he went back to that ro- role over and over and over again, at least while he was in his 20s, because all those three movies were made when he was when he's in his 20s and probably related to his own kind of fractured family life when he grew up. Um and uh, I find it interesting that you can kind of see the development of that. When I made Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, I'm actually parodied a bit of Boogie Nights um, uh, because the, you know, are, are you my mom? There's a moment where Roller Girl is saying to Julianne Moore, are you my mommy? Say you're my mommy, you know. Um, yeah. And I thought that was a little heavy handed. <laughs> and so I have a scene in Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me wherein uh, um, uh, someone's, someone is going to leave this, this surrogate family and, and one of the characters says, oh, you're going to break up our fake nuclear family. Which is my little mockery of the heavy handed Boogie Nights. Not that I don't think Boogie Nights is great because I do, but I thought that that was always a little on the nose. Um, I'm but, gonna play the rest of this clip. Yeah, play the rest of the clip. So here's dark. that music again, and watch as she's grabbing her pants and she's adjusting herself. And this is just like, a, and she's so sad. She looks kind of like the Joker here with her lips. Yeah, you know, um, I would say that this that scene is the first hint that we get that Sydney um, is not the classy, uh, classy, principled guy he's been trying to, um, let, uh, you know, portray himself as. The, the facade is it kind of uh, it, it, at least hinted there because even, even though he doesn't, even though he does say, "No, I'm not interested in sleeping with you." Yeah, be, no, no not, not not there. I think in, the, in when he's talking to her at the at the table, mm-hmm. where he says he doesn't talk, he hasn't talked to his kids in a while. The first thought in my mind is, well, this guy's had to do something really fucked up that his kids won't even talk to him, and uh, right. he has, yeah. So he's not all of a sudden the um, 
the guy he's been pretending to be. There are some real fuck ups in his life before this that his kids won't even talk to him. He doesn't know where he, his kids live. <laughs> so in the script, there's a there's another scene where he calls his ex wife after that, uh, and it doesn't and it doesn't go well. And I agree with cutting it out. I don't need it. I don't want to know. I can figure right. it out on my own. Right. And there's also flashbacks to um, his uh, being friends with John's father and the scene where he kills John's father. Oh, um, see that, that? Yeah, I think that would ruin the movie if that. Were I, I agree. I read the street scene and I thought I don't need any of this. I don't want. I don't want to look at him as a young man, and I don't. I don't need this at all. I think you. I can fill it in. The, the acting is so good that I don't need. You don't. You don't need all that stuff there. It's yeah. it's all in the face. Like it's one of the great faces. And one of the things this movie does really well, and Siskel and Ebert mentioned in the review, but they're absolutely right, which is the way it uses insert shots. And an insert shot is where like, you know, someone's handing someone to something and you get a close up on their hands. Um, one of my favorite insert shots if in, in anything is in this movie. It's when after the hotel scene uh, where, where Sydney cleans up, he then throws the gun and the uh, handcuffs in the sewer. And we get this slow motion close up of them sliding into the sewer. And it's so elegant. And we just keep getting people shaking hands in close up and all this stuff. And you just start to notice how important all that stuff is. Yeah. Normally, inserts are like a real bother. And in fact, a lot of inserts aren't shot with the actual actors. And, um, and the blood on the, the sleeve that he has yep. to cover up and all that stuff. Yeah, I noticed that yeah. too. Very good. And normally, you would never think about an insert shot. I mean, it wouldn't be so obvious about like, oh, and here's the reality of this. Here's the, here, you know, because we don't. That's when, when actors don't really do insert shots they're not available or it has to be thought of later or we need to, okay, show, show the guy looking at his watch so we can see the time, all that stuff. I think it's important, and I certainly did it. I shot insert shots with my actual actors because you really get a sense of how people behave and what they're doing in their life, and it, it, get, it can get a little phony. I remember a writing about a movie many years ago with uh, Luke Wilson and Sam Jackson called Meeting Evil in which all of the hand close-ups were of someone who was much, much older than Luke Wilson. So it was always distracting when you'd cut to the hands and it would be of a guy who was like 85 years old. <laughs> so there's a video on my website called like, I think like Luke Wilson's hands or something. That's just, oh, a, I don't remember if it's there anymore, but it's just a series of insert of, you see Luke Wilson, then you see the inserts of the hands. What about a way, why it's so important. That seems like a detail that is, is a weak excuse for not, uh, th there is no good excuse for not getting a, a younger hand model because if all you're shooting the hand, you don't have to be a great, you don't have to get Lawrence Olivier to, no. to do the hand stuff. You can get a younger man. <laughs> right. No, I totally agree. Um, uh, let's see. Um, mm. I think we're at a couple of, yeah. what? what? I think we played all the clips that you we said. did play all the clips, and then I and then I, I I started talking about the friends of Eddie Coyle, and I talked about Bob LaFlambeau. Um, uh, we talked about the differences in the script, um, and 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 you know Jimmy uh, slash Sam Jackson's like his his just acceptance of six thousand dollars, which I found very interesting. Um, uh, we talked about cigarettes and coffee, Courtney B. Vance. We went in sort of a different order than I pictured, but we got we cover most of it. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanna uh, you want you wanna cover, or did we, no, we hit just, all the high notes? No, yeah. Oh, just what is because in the end, as you say, it's it's. It, it, I you said it was kind of depressing, and I don't. Having lived that life, I don't think it it was necessarily depressing. I just think it it's kind of. Um, 
to me, it was, well, this is a slice of that life that nobody, if you don't live that life, you really don't see this much uh, of it. And, you know, but degenerate gamblers who've lived that life, um, is it all one of those, you know, what was that story? Um, more, more stories than the naked city. Um, that, you know, those, those gambling halls, those casinos, at least when I was, I'm, I haven't been in one in 12 years now, but up until that point in my life where uh, those, there are, there's that story, every other slot machine, there's a, a people like this, so very real people. And that's my takeaway from it. And so, yeah, I, you know, you're not happy for them, but you realize, a lot of the world is like that. Um, yeah. there, there well, if you a- haven't, if you haven't seen it, uh, the best gambling movie ever made in my mind is called California Split, uh, Robert Alt movie from the early seventies, which is on Amazon Prime in the extended cut, um, and features some. The, the extended cut has some Cheech and Chong in it, which I know is helpful for your right. the, the interview you did the other day. Um, <laughs> the, the the theatrical cut that you can get on DVD um, is missing the Cheech and Chong bit because they had some audio from a Cheech and Chong bit and it's on amazon prime in the full cut and it is probably i would say the best movie about gambling so george siegel and elliot gould and it's about even the lower rent version of what you're talking about my one um, of my father's favorite favorite movies gambling movies uh, his other one was and i forget the name of it now but uh david johansson was in it and richard dreyfus were, were the were oh the um two. uh uh play it uh what's it called um Oh, it's a the horse racing movie. I know. Right, the horse. Yeah, those were my father's two favorite gambling movies, and my father was a he was, you know, he he was Sydney. <laughs> so, so you get. But it's, have you seen Have you seen California Split? Uh, yeah, I've uh, not watched it. My it was on in my house a couple times. My father had had a. I think it was on HBO or something when he was running, but it he probably watched it like 20 times when it was on and well in my take, take a look at it on on amazon prime it is it is a masterpiece it is an understanding of gambling and and an understanding of like the compulsion and um that that uh is really just a, it's a remarkable movie um yeah. highly highly recommended um i remembered what it was called it's called let it ride let it it's ride i thought that might have been it, but it just, yeah it just seemed like too uh, too too easy for, for it to be that, but that was the, the first yeah. guess that came to my mind. Not a realistic movie, but like a but a sense of like if you're on a roll kind of thing. And, and, yeah, and it, it was realistic in the sense of it captured the I can't walk away, uh, you know yeah. <laughs> that that whole compulsion, uh, and my that was part of my growing up completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, watch watch California Split, which you know George Siegel just died, probably his best work. Um, Whenever Elliot Gould uh, was in a movie that Altman directed, which he did, California Split, often his best work, that and The Long Goodbye is his best work, and MASH. Um, so really just a, a very stark, funny, loose movie, but like with real understanding of, of, of that, like it was written by a real gambler. Yeah. Um, so he, he had a sense of it. And like right away, like if you're into that, like what what is it like lower class gambling look like? They nail that within the first five minutes. The yeah. compulsion and also just like how people it's just about nothing. It's just about like we're going to I'm going to win six bucks and I'm so angry about it because someone might steal that six bucks from me. That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> been there, man. yeah. And they'll bet on just about anything. They will bet on anything. man. it's it's, it's unbelievable. Um, but yeah, so that's the gambling life. But so um, my general takeaway from this movie, I enjoyed it. I would give it a thumbs up. Uh, I, I was curious why you picked this one, but you kind of explained that that that. Uh, but it seems so obscure that you know I I don't think um, 
it's just business the reason this was obscure it takes a certain uh patience and a a certain kind of ability to watch this movie and it's it's all because there are points like where he's walking through the casino where Mm -hmm. uh, a person who's used to fast action stuff and and getting to the point just doesn't have the patience it it doesn't have it does not have a quick pace and i like that i like a slow pace so it never bothers me I mean, he he talked about that first twenty minutes and like how the movie could have he could have gone off in fifty directions. He went one version where it takes place two days later or a week later or something, and then you know ten years, and then he just went with two years later. Um, but that first twenty minutes will either suck you in or it won't. And then there's another point when they get to the hotel room where it'll either alienate you or it won't. And and uh, that's where that that thing I've talked about before, where uh, plot and um, character sort of have to meet so you have this this moment where it's all about process where you're learning the process of what the gambling life is and then the plot has to kick in and you don't want one to overwhelm the other so just like the rapture which we talked about last month where the first half is the process about how somebody got somewhere and the second half is where the plot starts to kick in and and how you watch those characters react to stress which is what you see in the hotel room scene where everyone just reverts to who they are the puppy dog the 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 hard ass you know, the, the resentful little girl, all that stuff. Um, and you either go with it or you don't, but you know, I think it's, it's one of the great movies of its era. Um, and totally rewatchable, especially if you don't mind something that's a little bit more downbeat. Right. Are you curious at all about how it started? I mean, because that, that was when I got to the end, I, I, when I'm sitting there and as the credits are rolling and I'm thinking about the movie, the first thing I think is, well, he had to be stalking him in the beginning. How did he know where to find him outside, you know, on his down and out moment? Did he wait for that moment? Did, did you have any of that thought about curious about, at the beginning I mean, yeah, yes, yeah, you do think about it, but you know, you sometimes, especially a movie that starts sort of uh, in the middle of somebody's life or near the end, you know, you there are coincidences, and they're like, did he, did he know he was there? Yes, you have, you think about it, but since you don't know the motive until I don't know, eighty minutes into the film, right? You're not necessarily yeah. going to go back to it. Right. I, well, that's when I did go back to after the in the credits, because now that again, I think if they would have revealed the stuff about him, his father uh, too in early, early in the it, script, like about it, half an hour earlier, wouldn't it, it, it wouldn't it would ruin it for me. That was good that it revealed it late. But then and as the credits were rolling, I started thinking, wow, this was all contrived. So he had to be following him or stalking him mm-hmm. and know that he was he was at that moment where he's ready. Okay, this is this is my time to really recruit him and and try to change his life because uh, it wasn't like it, it had to be many years in the in the in the uh, mission personal mission for Sydney to to try to and enter oh, John. What, what else did he have to do with his time though? Right. Yeah. Probably learn yeah. about oh the mom died. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. He's gonna need some money. Should I should I reach out to him? Oh, he happened to, you know. Yeah. To 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 try to get to to gamble, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Um You can you can think about it that way if you want. Is it too much a coincidence? I don't I don't really think so. I mean, you you got to start somewhere. Is it too much a coincidence that uh, Melvin Dumar ran into Howard Hughes in Melvin yeah. and Howard? Yeah, yeah, no. They found him <laughs> on the side of the road. I mean, did that really happen? Probably not. But you know, within <laughs> yeah. the context of the movie, sure. Well, at the time, there were a lot of that. You know, with the Howard Hughes. I mean, this digressing from this movie at all. But there were a lot of stories about that Howard Hughes picking up hitchhikers and and or, or you know just people who 
having chance chance encounters with Howard Hughes. So, so it was prevalent at that time for rumors of that kind of behavior with Howard Hughes. So that wasn't so far fetched. <laughs> which is which, considering the context and what what he was uh, emulating, Paul Thomas Anderson. It's interesting that in this movie, not in Vegas but near Vegas, that there is no Elvis sighting at all in this movie, and I found right. that very re- refreshing <laughs> that we don't have to have that. That uh, that I, I guess totemistic feeling towards uh, Elvis, or even approach him as an idea. Right. The one thing that, from a technical point, that I wanted to ask you about because it, I it, I noticed it, and I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional, is the difference between in the in the coffee and cigarettes uh, clip of the diner scene uh, versus the hard eight diner scene the depths of field is much different in in the coffee and cigarettes you're seeing close-ups but outside the diner window is very soft focused blurred but in the hard eight version of that same kind of scene it's all very clear in that background was that well you, you got a better that- ca- you got a better camera work in hard eight oh, i mean so it, you know, it wasn't was, intentional was, no i it's he's a novice when he shoots coffee and cigarettes and uh, according to what i read um he shot it over a long period of time, and then they had the DP was fired, and then they replaced him. So there's there may have been okay, this is what we're going to do. But if you remember of the time shooting the windows of the uh, of the diners in all of these '90s movies was pretty common. Right. Um, but I prefer the tighter version. There's also an aspect ratio thing. You oh, know, they're yeah, shooting yeah, right, uh, two, right. three, five square, versus square, yeah, yeah, square versus rectangle. Um, and you know, keeping the actors at the, the edge of frame, but yeah, certainly cigarettes and coffee is tighter. Um, and, uh, it, it's also, yeah, from a technical perspective, it's more impressive. Like, okay, this is what you did because, you know, he's 22 or 23 when they're making this, like, is that really good for, is it a great movie? It's not really, um, it's built on a contrivance. It's got the same plot as the same year's 20 bucks where it follows around a $20 bill from person to person to person. Right. And it, it, it relies on just delaying to the point of, uh, um, you know, almost annoyance, honestly. Um, but it isn't as technically proficient as hard eight where he's working with a camera guy that he then worked with on almost every other movie, Robert Ellswit, who really knew what he was doing. Like for a low budget, hard eight looks great. It really does. Like yeah. a, a movies that cost four times that much don't look that good. Right, I I definitely like the the look of the movie. It definitely has a a really um, a really finished feel, professional, mm-hmm. clean feel to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yet it was buried, and and this TV company <laughs> did nothing with it. But, um, uh, yeah, go seek that out. It's on Amazon Prime now, and has been for months. Makes um, you wonder what, how many great movies that people that were out there that the business kind of just squashed and people never got to really uh, know. Uh, you know, it's you mean hard. like wait, wait. You mean like my film, wait, wait, don't kill me, which is going to be playing. On, <laughs> when is when is yeah? <laughs> uh, the, it's spelled Q O O like zero S M uh, is the website. Uh, it's going to be starting on April fifteenth. Uh, use the co- we're going to use the coupon code uh, don't kill me to get twenty five percent off any rental purchase or subscription it's a it's a subscription based video on demand service send that um, to send that to all, all that information for to, uh, in text and i'll put it in the description up top of of the description so people know about that right away absolutely sure i will um but yeah so my film is a, is a film that can get lost it's a viral pandemic horror comedy that matt <laughs> has seen and at least pretended to enjoy at some point but um, the business didn't kill your film necessarily. I mean, because this is well, it did. It, it it didn't kill it, but it, but there are no opportunities anymore. Right. Uh, Amazon Prime has has <laughs> has shut off. I don't know if you know this whole thing, 
they, they're pulling tons and tons of movies. They've cut off documentaries. They've cut off short films and they're just purging like crazy. And now they're doing, um, uh, you have to, uh, th- there's a process by which you have to submit and it takes months and months and months and not everything gets through um, at all. And they're just getting rid of like movies that did well, as long as they were small and independent, they'll just take them off the service. Ah, because so. they're, they're expanding all their other like podcasting and or mm-hmm. audiobook services and all that stuff. And I had a guy on yesterday who was a documentary filmmaker who does 10 documentaries a year and gets them on, on puts them all on Amazon. That's his main distribution <laughs> wait were you talking to jason horton no uh oh, okay what, uh now now you make me think of his name jeremy nori okay no i don't know him but jason horton is a guy who is also in the independent film world who often is, runs in the same circles that i do and puts out tons and tons of bigfoot movies and well, this uh, was uh, the guy yeah uh don't call me bigfoot was is his latest movie to get jeremy nori who was on yesterday i wonder well jason horton's a producer i wonder if he produced some of these movies i don't know uh did he used to work at fox Oh, I don't know. I've I've uh, talked to Jason a couple of times over, you know, Facebook. And, and this email, guy, but. this guy has a partner. I didn't ask his partner's name. Who was partner, co-producer, partner, and they live in different states. But yeah, that sounds like they might be, mm-hmm. because because yeah, that's all they do is. Um, well, they started with cannabis-related uh, documentaries, but then it went into the paranormal pretty quickly, and that's pretty much their focus now. Is all uh, fringe paranormal, Bigfoot, UFOs, all that stuff. Yeah, well, it could, it could, then it could be the same guy. Jason Horton does an excellent YouTube series on 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 distribution. Um, it's, it's just like up to the moment in terms of how to how to handle it because that's how he makes his his money. You know, I always think I was uh, having a conversation with a filmmaker the other day, and it occurred to me with all the work that we do to try to raise money, um, and all the embarrassment and all the family members we have to ask and all that stuff, and and all the videos you make and like even if you do well on crowdsourcing and raising money and all the meetings you take you're probably making about a dollar an hour, uh, whatever you net. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it just be less embarrassing to just get a, a part-time job and finance your movie that way so you don't have to cast some some angel investor's girlfriend right. in your movie? Um, maybe that's the way us filmmakers should go. Like, I've got a regular job, so I don't worry about it as much. But at the same time, it's depressing to work for years and years on something and then, like, the market disappears, you know. Even, even if my film is basically, um, you know, exactly what we just went through, to, right. to in, in a lot of ways, but done as comedy uh, with the pandemic. But um, uh, yeah, the, the market has shrunk in a way. So maybe, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting my film is as good as Heart Eight because it's not. But um, that we we were crushed by the system in our in our own ways by by the limits of imagination and and because there wasn't a big star in, in the film at the time. Right, I get that, and I I, I definitely hear your uh, grievance with the system there. What I'm what I'm kind of referring to is it's like. Uh, intentional squashing of something that was part of their own uh their own product and yes. that, and that, that that to me is confusing it's like you put the money into the production you backed it somebody said yes to it mm-hmm. uh and so why wouldn't you want to give it its best chance to succeed but well Reicher went out of business not long after <laughs> the movie came out they they gave the distribution to Samuel Goldwyn and and they were just gone cuz TV company who were who were out of their depth. Oh, but yes, it. yeah. Well, because when I saw the Samuel Goldwyn, that's that comes on at the very beginning, and I thought, mm-hmm. wow, this is a big studio production. The big no, it's Reicher who gave them the three million dollars. Ah, uh, okay. Um, well, that that but, makes a little more sense then. 
But yeah, so it was buried in early 97. And then, uh, you know, if you want to go on eBay, get yourself a DVD. Or if you got a Blu-ray player, I believe that Australian Blu-ray with all the same extras that I have is uh, is all region. So, you know, import right. it if you have to. So, but it, it begs the question, how many films do you think are out there like this that are uh, really, really interesting films that, uh, for whatever reason, distrib- distributors or uh, theaters or whatever just that didn't have oh, any tons of them. In them. Tons yeah. of them. Like there, there's just a, a there's no money in, in um, releasing an independent film in the theater anymore anyway. So uh, it's a lost leader. So there's plenty of movies that you will like. There, there are miracles that occur. Moonlight is a miracle, um, the one that won Best Picture in 2016, because right. it's essentially a movie for a very specific audience with no you know, occasional small roles for, you know, some people who, uh, who are character actors who are great. Uh, Mishirza Ali is amazing in that movie. But, you know, it's a movie about a, a, a gay black kid growing up in Miami. Right. Um, and, you know, who's the audience for that? And, you know, that, but, and, and something like Parasite breaking through. But you don't, it, it's, uh, it's a constant if you just find yourself a small movie and uh, um, you, you can champion all you want, but, you know, sometimes the system works against it and that's that's just you know how it works this is you know this isn't a, a a skill game or a talent game or anything else it's a it's a who who you know there's an interview that i did several months ago that's probably never going to air um where <laughs> the guy asked me a question it was probably i did probably did not give the answer he wanted um cuz it was about you know uh, mentoring right. and he said you know how do you you know what's the bit of advice that you have for filmmakers that will, you know, get you ahead. And I said, well, America is not a meritocracy and neither is filmmaking. So find, find the biggest behind you can and kiss it. Um, <laughs> because skill and talent have nothing to do with it. And it's all luck and who, you know. Um, and so he may never air that, but I don't, I don't disagree with myself from, from three months ago when I said it. Yeah. Um, um but um, so, yeah, there's plenty of movies that fall through the, the cracks. The entrepreneur in me says there's an opportunity there because you see 500 channels and nothing on. Mm-hmm. It would it would make a lot of sense for somebody with not like billions of dollars, but enough money to, to start a, a channel that is dedicated to uh, not so much preserving, but at least giving some exposure to the hundreds of th- or maybe thousands of films that could be out there that are like this one nobody knows about <laughs> right well but there's a, there's a negotiating licensing deals um yeah. and then and then the fact that there's no real money in it because people don't want to pay for stuff that's the problem you gotta you gotta you gotta have and i'm gonna say a name that's bad i'm gonna say jeff bezos's name yeah but he he pays for the washington post and it loses money but it's a it's an important thing that he does that he doesn't interfere and 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 it, and it, they do important work or when um what's his name mark cuban so did uh, magnolia films that's important. It's a money loser. All of these things are money losers. The arts is a money loser. Um, the good stuff is a money loser. Uh, most things are just tax write-offs. And if you're going to do it that way, you might as well support the arts. I probably said on your show before, the problem in society is that for the arts is that it's bad people that fund the arts. Um, they, they, they greenwash their money. Um, Koch brothers did it. They did it with like PBS and all those, all those things that are named after them. The Sackler certainly did it. Yeah. And it, while you have these tax deductions, uh, the money can be filtered through that, and 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 good things can get made, um, uh, but they're not going to make money because they don't appeal to the larger populace, and that's all that's important. Um, so things things fall through the cracks. You saw California split on HBO 
which is great. That movie wasn't even on VHS for like 35 years. Right. Um, you couldn't even see that. I saw that at a revival theater in the, in the 90s, but it was not available anywhere else because nobody wanted to bother clearing the music rights because it's a, you know it's a small movie with like names who who were a big deal in 1974, but not by the time home video came around. Right. So yeah. plenty of small stuff will will disappear. That's great. Um, your your job, I guess, is to support it when you can. Um, and, and say nice things and give good Amazon reviews and, and go to the places and force people's hands. That's the only, that's the only way around it. Um, you know, push, push the product if you believe in it and, and assume that, um, the, the big uh, stuff doesn't need your time or your energy because it really doesn't. It's just, those are just marketing exercises. Yeah. So, uh, we went two hours, even though I wanted to do uh, one hour. <laughs> well, I was ready anyway. to stop 20 minutes ago. I, I rounded at one hour 35 and I was like, great. We, we have gotten and... through my literal eight pages of notes. Right. Um, well, good. Well, I think we did uh, the, the movie a, a fair service and now people mm-hmm. can judge it on their own. So there, there it is. But I do need to end it here. I got, I got lots of work to do. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the show for tonight, folks. We'd love to know what you think about it. Uh, Adam's uh, film debut, uh, film pr- premiere, or again, or whatever it's called, screening. Yeah. It, well, all that information will be in the description uh, by by tomorrow morning sometime. Uh, and I hope you support it. And come back next month. With, I can't tell you what film that we'll be talking about then, but we'll be here talking about something else. So until then, uh, thanks for coming. Have a great night. Bye. Bye.
listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. 